Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kick it a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I feel like, you know, now that we've been doing this for a few weeks and you're trying to do a new voice every time you say Kyle Gordon, you're kind of um, really like stretching. You're like scraping the bottom of the barrel here a little yeah, bit. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, know, oh, well, you, you don't think they've all been masterpieces? I think that some of them have, but <laughs> because this is, you know, a somewhat critical and contemplative podcast, I'm not going to give you a pass for the ones that are a little weaker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take it. All right, yeah. I'm not precious. I'm not precious about my work. I, I take feedback. Yeah, yeah, which is one of the we'll, things. We'll that- start workshopping it. You know that we'll, we'll. I'll do. You know, I'll do research. I'll cut my research time down and expand my uh, vocal prep. Yeah, use your literally thousands of dollars you've spent training for being a comedian to yeah, think of right. better voices for introing the podcast. <laughs> exactly. It's all come to this. So we are joined today by a really amazing guest. We're really, really lucky and excited to have her. She uh, works in the uh, education department at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. She's a rock historian herself. We are both writers for Rebeat Magazine, which is one of the main ways we know each other. And uh, you can listen to her radio show, Dead Airplay Record Club, on WRUWFM which is in Cleveland. You can listen to it on the, you know, via streaming services (laughs) at wruw.org, at the TuneIn app, or if you're in the Cleveland area, 91.1 FM. Her name is Gretchen Unico. Welcome to the podcast, Gretchen. Thank you. I'm excited. I've wanted to to be on your podcast since you started it, as you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're we're really happy that we can finally do this, and this is definitely one of the benefits to us all having this extra time and also having the ability to record remotely. Gretchen's joining us from Cleveland. She's not sitting two feet away from me and breathing on me because we're not those types of people. <laughs> no, but it seems yeah. like I am because I have this professional radio equipment in my house. <laughs> I know, it looks really impressive. We'll have to take a little screenshot of this and <laughs> yeah. um, like me and Louie looking with like our gaming headsets and then Gretchen has like the full, yeah, Gretchen, Gretchen's upstaging us already. It's great. I yeah. borrowed it, so it's not yeah. mine. <laughs> yeah, Gretchen's really flexing because she has a windscreen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the deal. <laughs> we're easily impressed. We are. <laughs> no, no pops will be heard during this Amazing. podcast. Amazing. So this is Kick the Jukebox. This is a musicology podcast where we explore a uh, album every week that has somehow influenced our tastes or we think has a really cool story about it. Uh, this week we are exploring the 1978 debut from The Cars, which is self-titled The Cars. And uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes and any other podcatcher of your choice. You can follow us on social media, that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, before we get started this week, uh, I feel it'd be like super irresponsible to not mention that the United States is clearly undergoing a state and a period of like enormous social upheaval. And I just want to address it sort of within the the context of this, this podcast Uh, in that I feel like if you are a fan of music and art, 
you should also be an advocate for a fair and equitable society because we know that art functions better when uh, the the structures uh, that is created under are fair and equitable for its participants. So that being said, you know, I've been dropping my Venmo every week, as has Kyle. Don't give us money this week. Uh, I've donated to uh, the Minnesota Freedom Fund this week. Apparently, they have received so many donations that they're now asking for donations to be given to other organizations. So please, uh, please donate to the Black Visions Collective, Reclaim the Block, North Star Health Collective, uh, or the Louisville Bail Fund. And I'm going to post those in the show notes for this week. Uh, you know, and if you can lend your body to a protest, please do. I know that right now protesting is very uh, risky with the current pandemic that we're all undergoing, and it makes a lot of people reconsider being out on the streets. So if you can't do that, you know, now is a really good time to, if you are a white-bodied person like the three of us are, educating yourselves how to be an anti-racist member of society. And that's something I'm attempting to work on while I'm in quarantine. <laughs> So, yeah, so it just felt it was important to to talk about that uh, within the context of Kick the Jukebox Incorporated because, you know, we all feel pretty strongly about it. That being said, what are we listening to this week, pals? Uh, how are we all feeling? How are we doing in our current situation? Well, I can uh, kick it off. And thank you for um, saying that because uh, I think it's really important. But now uh, I think what I've been listening to this week hasn't really been super relevant to anything else going on in my life but that's okay um sometimes I, music is an escape you know exactly 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 and i've been listening to this uh i i kind of uh found it a few months ago it's just one of those things that spotify pointed in my direction mm -hmm. um and it's this very bizarre album from 2001 from this israeli singer named charlie magira who's like a singer and guitar player and it was like there, there is nothing about this guy online, and apparently he died like five or six years ago. And uh -huh. I don't, it, there's no information on why or how he died. Um, but his first album is called "The Abtomatic Meister Zinger Mambo Chic," and it's this incredible, weird, like '50s rockabilly kind of spaced out psychedelic album. It's just him and his like twangy guitar, and I hate when any critique of an album calls it something like blank on acid but sure it is, <laughs> but it is kind of chris isaac on acid i right. would say it's like but you know what I'll, I'll switch it up it's chris isaac on mescaline and it's really fucking spaced out and awesome and i think he never really got popular because he insisted on singing in hebrew sure. but it's it's like incredible so i i highly recommend listening to charlie mcgeer it's if you just want to like space out and you know i know we're all like smoking opium and crying ourselves to sleep so this is a good album for that yeah definitely uh we're all having it, whether you like actually know it or not i i personally feel we're all having like a profound psychedelic experience being stuck yeah. inside like this in a really like confrontational way so this might be good music for that you know for sure definitely gretchen how about you so I, I guess I have a couple things. I mean, I've been working on my radio show playlists because normally we get to record at the WRUW station, like in the studio, and it's very easy and it's very improvisational. And I'll just bring records and just like throw them on, but I can't really do that right now. So it's like a lot of work. I have to edit. I have to just take song files and edit them together and then like make my own music bed and then like 
I have I, I thought about not using a music bed, but then you can hear like how terrible it is recording in my dining room. So I have to I have to go the extra effort to make it sound decent. So it, it's a lot of work. So I'm a lot more intentional with my playlists right now, and I'm kind of doing themes. I did one the other week that was '60s sunshine pop because I I really felt that that was a, a mood that people need <laughs> right now. Oh yeah. And similarly, the one that I have that's premiering tomorrow is kind of a part one. I'm going to do another episode, but it's uh, 70s AM gold. I guess a shorthand for that is if you like the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, right, that's, right, right, right. <laughs> that's basically what that is. You know, it's just happy, kind of like very, a lot of one hit wonders. Great. Just re- really cheesy 70s music. Um, yeah. I, I lean more towards like early 70s because it's like the weirdest to yeah. me. Um, but yeah, <laughs> at call least the it, novelty calling songs. Occupant, calling Occupant. If it yes. Like, yes. Feel, and yeah. like, I don't know, like this, I haven't actually put this in my playlist, but like Timothy, have you ever heard the song Timothy about like um, this guy? It's like a shipwreck and, and like the narrator <laughs> of the song like actually eats Timothy. It's like, it's about cannibalism. Like, it's, 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 I mean, look it up. Yeah, look up Timothy. I can't remember who did it. Um, That's it sounds like a 70s song. It's very like a novelty song. I remember the first time I heard it on the radio, my mom's like, oh, this is the song about the guy who eats the other guy. Like, she's like, the punchline is it's a shipwreck and the singer ate Timothy. Because like, all the songs like, where did you go, Timothy? <laughs> and like it's it's because he ate him and he oh my god we're we're what are we five minutes in we're already coming with the masterpieces already- <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing so i mean i actually ha- don't have that in my playlist maybe i'll do it next week but um yeah like if you, if you like stuff like that listen to dead or play record club because the whole concept of my show is just music that like used to get played on the radio a lot or like never gets played on the radio but yeah old so like it's like it's dead, like it's dead airplay. So yeah, it's 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 sort of been lost to time, although it was mm-hmm. popular at a certain time. And that is sort of something that's like interesting about the history of popular music is there's really like two modes, I feel. There is like this was popular for like six months and then disappeared forever, or this is something that we still remember. Like there's very little that's in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and we've actually recently been talking more about I would say some of the bigger albums of the time although you know we did the knack last week which I think is a great segue into talking about the cars uh-huh. and the knack really were one of those al- one of those albums where mostly they were a flash in the pan other than the existence of my Sharona but are still pretty well remembered as opposed to you know, a lot of like ephemera from like specifically, I would say the seventies was a real period for that. You know, <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, I think we're to segue. I think we are continuing our streak of just massive, uh, extremely not only massive in its time, but just like kind of timeless albums. Just like gig- like this this album was huge. It was. It was. It was a big record. Came out, I said this already, it came out in 1978. And uh, however, uh, something that's interesting about this album is a, many of the songs charted and charted quite highly, but the Cars would, you'd be surprised because there's some real big anthemic Cars songs on this record. They didn't have a number one until Shake It Up, which was several mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, the band has joked that this album could be called the car's greatest hits and like they wouldn't be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. So 
we've been meaning to cover this album with you, Gretchen, for like quite a while because you're such a huge fan of it and it's sort of a real like tangible place where our tastes overlap and it feels like there's a lot of meaty stuff to talk about. So like, what drew you to the cars and, and why do you love the cars? So I think that um, at least everyone of a certain age like grow, grew up with the cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in my like late 20s now. So like that, that music was on the radio and still is um, my entire life. So it, it's like, I don't remember like the first time I heard the cars, but I, I really got into them actually when I moved to Cleveland, which is ironic because Ben Orr from the cars, the lead singer and bassist, he's actually from Cleveland, which yes. I didn't know at the time that like, wasn't the catalyst. Um, and then uh, also like Rick Ocasek, like lived in Cleveland and like met Ben there and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's like when you move to a new place, your brain changes and you're like more open to things. And like, I think I just really got into the cars because like, I like was listening to just their music casually, just kind of in the mix of everything. And then the song, that, which we'll talk about, I guess, in a bit, that really kind of stood out to me was from this album. It was Bye Bye Love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, I don't know if I'd ever really listened to it because it's not one of the big radio hits. I just heard it and like there was so much about it that just felt like warm and like melancholy and like nostalgic in a weird way. And just like so much of like a time and place. Like it just had a feeling to it that I just really loved. That was kind of a song that really got me like into listening to them and re-listening to that first album, like as a complete package, which I don't know if I'd ever like consciously done. I just kind of got into the discography from there. And then when the, uh, I remember Cheap Trick got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I didn't work there yet, but but Cheap Trick got inducted and I like, I remember all the stuff around it and I was like, you know, like what's a band from that era who should be inducted as the Cars? For sure. Um, They're really, I think there's a lot of similarities between those bands. I think, and like literally the next year it happened, like the Cars got inducted the next year. So I think that I, I had spent all this time kind of growing up my fandom and then like when the Cars got inducted, there was so much news buzz around them that I really like got into it and really got into like researching the band and like learning about them and just like kind of really engrossing myself in the fandom. So like my supercars fandom is only like a few years old, but yeah. it's kind of been gradually building. And I think that is, that's how it is for a lot of bands, you know, where you're like always aware of them and, and like one day they just mean something different to you because of the mind space you're in. And so that's kind of gradually how it happened for me with the cars. But I think if I had to kind of summarize it, what I love about them is that they really like they just have such like an energy and they have such like, like Rick Ocasek has just like, is just one of those people who is a natural songwriter. Like he understands melody. Like mm-hmm. he, he just does. It's like his brain is wired that way. He knows how to write a catchy melody and write like a, a perfect pop song. Like some people are pop songwriters, like, and that's a fantastic skill. And like, I wish I had that skill. <laughs> um, so I, I think that it's just, I'm very much somebody, like I'm a huge power pop fan. I would actually consider the cars power pop. Um, would you consider them power pop over other types of descriptors that they've been called over the years? Because they really were marketed so heavily as like a new wave band. I think uh, part or, of, oh, you know? go ahead. Oh, just early on. And then also like, they're also, so many of their songs are just such a staple of like kind of more classic, uh, like a more classic oldies radio format. So I'm, I'm yeah. wondering, do you consider them first and foremost power pop? I think part of what it is, is like, I, the reason I would for, foremost consider them power pop is probably just because I'm so attuned to that genre and that yeah. like categorization that that's like what I identify them as first. But I think that especially early cars, 
feels very power pop. Like this record, absolutely. Um, and Candio as well. And mm-hmm. then when you get into the eighties, like I, I think there's still power pop in the eighties, but it just becomes conflated with new wave because that was the term that the public knew and understood. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, like, I think new wave is more identified by like the kinds of instrumentation that's used. The, a lot of the production I think has a lot to do with new wave, whereas power pop is more about how songs are constructed. Yes. And how like power pop is a lot about guitars. It's about guitar riffs, guitar driven songs. It's about like this kind of very nasally singing style. <laughs> I think like this, like, you know, like Beatles and British invasion and sixties music influence. Like it's very nasally. It's not conventional. It's not a conventionally attractive singing voice. Like it's not like Barry Manilow or whatever. It's, it's more like <laughs> the I, most I was, attractive singer most attractive. of all time. Yes. I guess like conventional. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's like very much a style. And then new wave is a lot about like synth and um, like weird production techniques and like, it has I think it's very associated with like the 80s and, and stuff like that um, definitely but I think like you can really at least like late 70s early 80s punk and then new wave and power pop are all very connected like there's a lot of those bands can be like cross-categorized yeah there's a lot of overlap albums. there yeah, yeah it's, so and it's, it's something Kyle and I've been talking about on our on the last few episodes of the podcast is sort of our preferences for power pop when it kind of bleeds more into the punk side of things and is a little more like tightly wound and how there's certain power pop bands that we like but we feel just aren't as like direct as we want them to be and we keep bringing up you know people are going to think we hate them and we actually don't we think they're a good band but we keep bringing up big star as being like a little too a little too um like kind of gentle for at least for our musical tastes but i think that uh this band specifically the cars really kind of I think at least for me sort of scratches all my itches of what I want from a power pop band yeah and I think they like thread the needle with I mean I think uh, many people have made this observation but like they kind of thread the needle between all of these genres like they they had the kind of like new wave skinny jeans Rick Ocasek and his big long legs wiggling around like new wavy thing that like really tight stripped down sound. Yes. Um, that the like lead, maybe the lead singer being a frightened man. Yeah. <laughs> <It's a> real <laughs> new wave yeah. trope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, but then also, so like that maybe appealed to more of the like hipstery kids or arty kids, but the, like in the same way that I think Gretchen mentioned, like I remember hearing, the cars on like classic rock radio yeah and like you know i think like like townies like this music just as much as the arty kids did and That's i think right. threading that needle is very hard and very rare and also the sign of like a really fucking cool good band and definitely the cars were a uh you know definitely rick okasek was the number one driving creative force of this band, but they're very much just some of their parts. Uh, yeah, which is for sure. It should be brought up. And also it's just a good way to talk a little bit about the history of the band for those who may not be as familiar with, with them. So they really formed out of a longstanding partnership between the, uh, sing- the lead singer and rhythm guitarist and head songwriter Rick Ocasek and Ben Orr, who also was one of the lead singers of the band, uh, and was on bass. And they formed a songwriting partnership in the late 60s. And they met in the mid 60s, both while they were living in Ohio, playing in various bands. And 
then they moved to Boston together. They liked the, the Boston music scene and wanted to be a part of that, where it just notably they ran around with um, Jonathan Richmond of the Modern Lovers. And John, Jonathan Richmond, they were in a band for a brief period of time called Richard and the Rabbits, with jo- which Jonathan Richmond named. <laughs> which is just like the most Jonathan Richmond named thing ever. <laughs> like, they also were in a folk group together as well. So they sort of were experimenting with a lot of different types of, a lot of different types of musical styles. And then uh, eventually after a lot of different permutations and some like small local successes, they founded the cars with Elliot Easton on lead guitars, who I think really gave the band kind of like that anthemic, classic rock feel, which yeah. is why I think the music yeah. is so accessible by different types of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Hawks on keys. And Greg Hawks, like notably... I think uh, he's the un- unsung hero of this band. He's definitely sure. the unsung hero of the band because he's very smart when it comes to his keyboard lines and also yeah. just like his, you know, he was very progressive when it came to his use of keyboards and sequencing mm-hmm. patterns. Yep. And then also had more of, uh, apparently had more of a creative say amongst the band as the albums progressed which is yeah. why i would say by the mid 80s we hear that like really kind of slick new wave sound but yep. his keyboard lines on this album are really great so yeah. it's not like um it's not like he was being buried in the background here he also later on uh got into uh releasing these like multi-layered ukulele records <laughs> and the only reason why i bring it up is that i saw him once at a ukulele fest in new york what really yeah and <laughs> everybody whipped out their ukuleles because we all had them at our little ukulele festival we were all at and we all played best friend's girl with him on the ukulele <laughs> oh my god i know which is just really fun like it's just it's worth noting right that that's like part of who he is <laughs> How many people were there playing along with him? Like, you know, 50 people. That's insane. Yeah, isn't that awesome? It <laughs> was incredible. like, it was kind of moving. It was a really yeah. cool experience. Yeah. That's a happening. <laughs> Wall of ukuleles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we got David Robinson on drums, who is a former member of the Modern Lovers, who are like, just for those that don't know, a highly influential Boston, kind of like, I'd say power pop rock and roll songwriting band who I personally love, headed up by Jonathan Richman, and then also boasts Jerry Harrison, later of Talking Heads, is one of its members too. So that's sort of a really interesting stem band for a lot of musical movements. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, but I see, I think the um, common denominator between both of those bands among swapping members is like a love for the Velvet Underground. And like, totally, uh, you know, like very directly, like parroting in, a, parroting in a great way, like the Velvet Underground. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, a lot of the time, Jonathan Richmond's just doing a, you know, a, a Lou Reed impression, which is For great. Sure. <laughs> yeah, a Lou Reed impression by, like, a doofy geek weirdo. Exactly, yeah, totally. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, something about the cars that I think, and you guys, please feel free to agree with me or disagree with me, is I think that they're a band that had a lot of, like, very arty and obtuse influences, but, like, decided decided to work within a pop framework and that's one of the things that makes them so interesting is that yeah like I think Rick Ocasek couldn't help but be a pop songwriter and it's how he felt most comfortable but there's a lot of influences on this album and on other Cars albums 
that sort of betray that, you know, that, that they weren't like listening to a lot of pop while they were writing these. They were listening to other stuff. And Okasik went on to be a producer and he produced some really like ephemeral stuff. He worked with Suicide, who are like a very harsh, like synth rock band uh, from the 70s. He worked but with I ben- think that's another band that like, I mean, much more than the Cars, like wants to be and is really arty and heady, but they can't help themselves and end up writing pop songs as much as they try not to, you know? That's fair, but I would say that Suicide is a less accessible band than the Cars. 100%. (laughs) I mean, they're they're called Suicide. I don't think they're like meant to be like on your mom's record shelf, but. Yes, seriously. And then, you know, he also worked with Bad Brains, which is, I think, really notable. So there is a lot of punk influence, I would say, in his work. And then, uh, just because uh, we've covered them on this podcast, he re- he uh, worked with Weezer on their first album, the Blue Album, which definitely has sort of a "we're geeks rocking out" sound to it, which I think is why they chose Okasik to to produce. And then he produced the Green Album for them. And then he produced, and I just I just want to note this: really, one of the only two good later period Weezer albums, uh, yeah. "Everything Will Be All Right in the End," which is they brought real- him back which is really good, a really good record, and I, like, highly recommend. And he produced, in 2004, La Tigra's big pop effort that's called This Island, which sounds a lot like it owes a lot of influence to the cars. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of, I just think that all that part of sort of this musical stew that he's involved in kind of explains where they were coming from at the time when they, when they released this. I think the biggest thing that makes it clear that they weren't listening to pop music is that nothing else in the time the cars started sounds like the cars. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're, nothing like on the pop charts in like 1978 sounds quite like, at least nothing really popular sounds yeah. quite like them. Yes. And, and I think that's why they've had a longevity. Although at the time, there are some critics that would disagree with that. who are like, oh, this is just another new wave band. There's a sloppiness to this. But I mean, it's like, this is 1978. So, I mean, this is just like, you know, I don't even know the, the, the term probably was coined like a year, like around this time, you know, like, especially in, in America, I feel like, you know, they are the right as this wave is cresting. Yeah, totally. They got grouped in with them, but they are not totally of them. So yeah, let's listen to our first song we're going to cover. So this was uh, Gretchen's pick, Bye Bye Love, and is a really good example of sort of that iconic car sound, I would say. So here's a little bit of Bye Bye Love. Such a 
I love the way that song punches in. I feel like it's a really dynamic start uh, and then kind of really gets gets into the, to its groove. Gretchen, why do you choose this song? Well, I kind of alluded to you at the beginning, I guess, um, that it, it's really kind of, I think, the, the song that started me on being a real, like, conscious, serious Cars fan. And I think it just has so many elements that work together so well. Like there's that opening that just like announces its presence immediately. It's very catchy. I like how it has like loud and soft moments. Um, mm -hmm. Basically like the instrumental bits are very like kind of soft. Um, and like when he goes into the verses, um, it's a Ben Orr song, which are, are my favorites, the ones that he sings. Sure. Um, because, I mean, Rick Ocasek, like, has said multiple times that, like, if it was a song where he thought, like, the prettiness needed to be played up, <laughs> yes. he'd have, like, Ben Orr sing it, because Ben Orr is, a, is, like, just technically, like, a smoother singer. Yeah, really um, beautiful vocalist, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, which is so funny, because people get confused. People think, like, Rick Ocasek sings everything. Like, they don't they don't realize that it's two different people. Yeah. Um, which is easy to do. I don't think I realized that for a long time. Like, what, definitely not when I was, like, a kid. I probably thought it was, like, all the same person. Mm -hmm. But um, they do have similar voices, but they're they're definitely different, like, if you listen. So I, I love, like, I think Ben is a perfect choice for that song. He, like, kind of gives the tenderness to it. Um, but it's it's just it's just got so much that happens. And I love melancholy songs in general. I love, like, melancholy songs that are very catchy, and that's, like, exactly what that is. So it's just got such a great atmosphere to it and that's something that i think is very new wave like new wave is all about atmosphere and like using synth often to convey that atmosphere i think definitely so it, it really like it, it's both power pop and new wave to me like it's got the punchy bits that are like power pop um it's got like the guitar bits that are very power pop uh, but then it's got like the i just think of like when he says it's an orangey sky and there's like that doo -doo 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 -doo, like, yes. it's very like that's such a moment <laughs> and it's yeah. such a good line too like like an orangey like it just it feels like oh like i kind of know what that means but i also don't literally know like <laughs> what that means yeah but it has such a, a good feeling and then i will say this song was used really effectively in a movie if people have seen super eight that uh -huh. movie that came out like I feel like it came out like ten years ago now. Yeah, uh, it's like that Steven Spielberg movie that was Stranger Things before Stranger Things. Totally, <laughs> how I feel about it because when I saw that movie, I just loved the feeling of it so much. Because if you, for folks listening, if you haven't seen it, it's it's basically like some kids who want to film a movie and they they like happen to see an alien fall from space and like or not fall from space like being transported. I think in like a train and it breaks out it's a whole thing anyway like if you see that movie uh it's it's very much like that meeting of like like a, a 20th century childhood with like the supernatural and when i saw it i was like i wish this was like a tv show because i would watch it <laughs> and then stranger <laughs> things came out and i was like oh this is exactly what i asked for um i'm a huge fan of that show but it's it, like it was used in that i remember there's a scene where they're like the, there are two kids who are driving together and they're like I think they're like teenagers they're driving and like that song is playing and it's nighttime and it's like it's just like such like that is like how that song feels it feels like driving at night like in yes. the dark with like I mean that was like with this girl that this kid liked so like it even has like some of that element of like there's some like romantic conflict sort of like or, or like tension romantic tension I guess is a better word um and that's like in the song lyrics themselves, but it's also in like the mood of it. 
Well, there's, there's so, just a lot going on. <laughs> there's, so, there's so much of that that I think is like the aesthetic of this band. You know, like I think there's a reason why they name themselves the Cars, uh, is that there's sort of a, a connotation of everything that Cars, uh, you know, represent within like youth culture which is sort of like power, uh, autonomy, romance, for sure. And definitely, uh, I would say that like a lot of this music sounds like it should be listened to at night. And mm. I say that that is like part of the, the, the synth influence. Yeah, and then, and then also too, uh, something I've never really thought about about New Wave before, but is very true, is we get to kind of listen in real time while we're listening to these earlier new wave records of musicians figuring out what synthesizers are supposed to be for. Yes, I think they do an awesome job on this whole album and especially this song, which is my favorite song on the album. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, like almost every song has like a different synth sound like or a key, mm -hmm. different keyboard sound and so like and sometimes you'll get sort of the like like the cheap kind of um 60s teeny bopper keyboard sound like question mark in the mysterious uh, you know mysterious like it's very like just, staccato like yes exactly yeah sometimes you'll get that and then sometimes you hear these like really big synths and sometimes on the same song they'll switch it up where you'll get these synths that sound like van halen like six years later you know I remember reading a quote. I can't remember. I feel like it was Greg Hawks. I, I think it might be L.A. Easton if it's about guitars, but it was talking about how he said, like, we just bought the newest equipment because we just wanted to use it. Yes, and it was like, yeah. it, and it would like become like uh, defunct in like a year. And he said something like, I had so many pedals. Like, I just like didn't even know what to do with them. <laughs> yeah. and, like, you know, half of them were like passe. And so they, were still cutting, they were interested in being cutting edge because like they were genuinely excited about it. Like it wasn't like, they weren't trying to be cutting edge for the sake of, sake of selling records or being popular. It was just that they they thought the technology was cool and they wanted to use it. And and then another thing too, I think, which that relates to is sort of the creative framework of this band is that Akasic was bringing in the songs, but apparently within the studio and within their sessions together, they were all uh, highly responsible for their own parts. And, and that's also like, I think really comes through on this entire album is that they were all really artistically invested in the parts that they were playing. And they all kind of brought a lot of their individuality as musicians to the songs. This song was previously recorded by one of their earlier bands, uh, Okasik and Orr's earlier band, uh, I believe uh, by Captain Swing was the name of the band. And it's just interesting because the song is a fairly well-written song, but like that band had a different keyboardist and a different guitarist, lead guitarist, and the keyboard parts are kind of all over the place. The Both the keyboard part and the guitar part actually sound, I just need to bring this up just because I think it's it's really funny, sounds specifically like the Nokia ringtone which is so <laughs> odd. You just, you know, re-listen to it. Uh, and that keyboard part literally ends with it being like, like it's very weird. <laughs> but the reason why I want to bring it up is that not only do I think that the other band members really help kind of solidify a lot of what uh, Okasik was going for, but also the production as well, I think was really important for the whole album. And it's, it's, 
good to just talk for a second about Ray Thomas Baker, who produced this record, who uh, started in the music industry at 14 and was, you know, had been producing since he was quite young. And he is most well known for working with Queen. And I think that he lends the cars this like big expansive sound. There's also like, I think some vocal arrangements on this album, background vocal arrangements that I would guess were mostly uh, Baker's contribution just because they sound so much like Queen vocal yep. arrangements that kind yeah, of he like there's there you know i don't think rick okasic or i know he he said he's like he thought it sounded too smooth and big like there are choirs there are like full choirs on certain songs on this album which is not an obvious choice and it may just have been you know roy thomas baker's like you know he's just like this is what i know how to do so i can help add this but it totally works really well it does. It, it it kind of takes them, I would say, out of that world of like being a garage band, right? Which, or which like they the sound- really slick, like Elvis Costello-y new wave band where it's all like trimmed down. Like there are yeah, full, yeah, like-, like a sparseness that we talk right. about a lot with new wave. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, I would say that live performances from this time they resemble up more of kind of a tight like late sixties garage rock band right Gretchen would you agree yeah with I, I was just gonna yeah. say I feel like the live cars experience is different than the album cars experience mm-hmm. um in that I think that like when they're live they depend so much on like the energy like there's there's such an energetic band I was watching some concert footage to like get prepped for yeah. this and they're like they they, re- they really rely so much on their energy and their musicianship and then in the studio it's like they have the ability to like create more of that atmosphere. Like Greg Hawks can only do like so much like stuff on stage. Like, I mean, right. he does a lot of it. Like that's not to say it's not there, but I think there's just so much more production capability on the albums. And that's such an eighties new wave thing is that like, it's, it's so dependent on the production. And like, I yeah, to your point that it's more like a garage band, like it, it really, like, it's almost like cheap tricky. Like yes. go back to that. Like it's very like punchy and like, uh, driven by the performers and um, the songs, like really the quality of the songs themselves and how catchy they are. Uh, so I think that I think that that's definitely true. Like I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And I would argue that the production got them a much larger fan base because it just kind of recontextualizes the songwriting as being like for I would say for like a bigger audience and for people who are more fans of like kind of a more like mainstream rock and roll sound. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I think that we should listen to You're All I've Got Tonight, which I just think is a good example of everything we've been talking about, kind of that like expansive sound and um, the those sort of big, uh, sort of the, the big emphasis on the vocals. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and this was Kyle's choice. So let's listen to a little bit of uh, You're All I've Got Tonight.
think something that I really love about this song is specifically the first time that like keyboard riff comes in. Yeah. I think, <laughs> <laughs> like I think it just like really changes where the song is going and how it feels. And it kind of I think a lot of the stuff on this record kind of zigs where it where we think it's gonna zag and it's very creative. So yeah, so you know, take it away, Kyle. Talk about talk about your all I've got tonight. <laughs> Definitely. No, I think that's exactly right. I think this is another song with, that has so many sort of seemingly disparate components, but they co- go together so well. And I think, especially um, like in a lot of the songs on this album um, that are really great, there are these very distinct parts to each song, and somehow they go together really, really well. Um, I think that like. And I think specifically um, something I, I kind of love on this song is there's like a lot of lot probably more than maybe on a lot of other songs on the album there's some like more guitar noodling like lead guitar forward stuff on this song that I think is a really good example of like it's like noodly but it's not and you know a word I always say it's like it's not indulgent it's not <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you know especially for 1978 there was a lot of nonsense indulgent nonsense happening at the time yes and um to be able to have like i mean i think that's the sign of like a really good power pop like lead guitar sound is like it's like a tight riff um but it serves the song but also it's like you know it's noodly because you're you know you're doing like some lead guitar lines but it's not it's not drifting into outer space and you know um and i think uh like making that work and i think this is kind of a testament to what you were saying in that like um you know each you know rico Kasich would come with the songs and then each member of the band was responsible for contributing their part and i think this is a testament to like you're a lead guitar player you wanna fucking noodle around you know this is the same year the first van halen album came out yeah to talk about some like indulgent guitar noodling but like um i think everyone understood that like my contribution although i have autonomy has to serve the song first Mm -hmm. and i think that's the sign of like any great you know any great band yeah Yeah. i I would definitely agree with that because i think Ellie Easton is such an important part of this band that people don't really know, like don't really realize that. Um, we didn't really choose to talk about uh, My Best Friend's Girl, but just to bring up something in that song, like the guitar in that song is so joyful. And right after the like, chorus is perfect. awesome. Yeah, it's, it's just perfect. Like, it's so and how bouncy. does it work? Like, right, exactly. It, it just, it doesn't sound like any guitar, like, that I've ever heard anywhere else. It, yeah. It, like it's it, it's clearly comes from like certain influences, but like it sounds so singular. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like Elliot LA, LA Easton's like probably my favorite part of the cars actually, mm. because I just think he has so much to do with like adding that energy and that like power poppiness to the band. For like, sure. He's really super fantastic. I yeah. Think. And, and also <laughs> him, I'd say my best friend's girl is a great example of him knowing when to hold back. Right. And knowing when to really shine. And that is like such a smart uh, kind of lens through to look at just like instrumentation technique that it seems like he's doing really naturally, you know? And something really interesting I heard him say about this song is like he was like said, this is my favorite song to play. It was my favorite song to play in the studio and my favorite song to play live because I could really... This is You're All I've Got Tonight, just to clarify? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. He was like, that's because I was really 
able to stretch out. So I think that's more of a testament to like, he likes doing that. He likes messing around on the guitar, but he's not going to let that impulse prevent him from contributing to the song, you know, which is even more a testament to his like really good instincts. Yeah, definitely. I think the marriage of like um, his, like he has such a, a good understanding of pop guitar and then, like, in the same way that Rick Ocasek has such a good understanding of pop songwriting, that, like, those two just go together so well. Like, the, sure. the, I think, like we were saying before, the thing about the cars is they're all just such masters in their field. Mm. And so when you put them together, they work together well. And they're all interested in the same things. They all like the same weird influences. So it's not yep. like you have disparate kind of ideas happening. They're all, they're all on the same page. They're all good at what they do. And so they're able to like feed each other's creativity and build off each other rather than like competing with each other. And I think that that creates sort of this aesthetic of being like great American landscape youth movement music, which they kind of come from a grand rock and roll tradition of. I feel like there's a like wide range of emotions that the cars veer back and forth around like in individual songs you know and that is sort of due to like kind of like the loud quiet loud aspect that we've been talking about but it's also due to like a lot of i think musical choices like another song that we aren't going to talk about in depth but i feel is worth noting is the album opener let the good times roll Mm -hmm. which i think uh if you listen to it sounds really foreboding yeah, and yeah. Kind of such a weird choice to open the album. But also I think is like so really lays down who they are and their aesthetics right. in a great way because it is sort of strange. It feels kind of tentative. It, there's, I think there's a nervous energy to it as well. But then the chorus is so like huge and expansive in that song and feels like a release. Like I think that that's kind of what they're, what they're doing so well and puts them like in the camp of new wave in a way that that you know we can all uh, we can all agree with yeah <laughs> and and that feels what you're kind of conveying to me feels like so teenagery which is oh, i think yeah. like part of the car's appeal um is that they i think they like i don't think they were trying to but i think they really captured teenage emotions and like the volatility of those feelings, which is just something I'm personally very interested in because I think I still feel that way as an adult so often. <laughs> which is also so interesting because Rick Ocasek was and really looked 34 years old oh, yeah. when this came out. Like, he, he always, like, the entire time he's been famous, he looked old. Yeah, <laughs> you really have it in for him. You really No, I mean, I, dude, it's respect. Like, well, you know, I, he's, he's kind of like a Springsteen in that way. Like, not to get yeah. crazy here with the comparisons, but, like, Springsteen has never, like, looked like a teenager. He's always, right, like, a exactly. grown man, like, working in the factory. Yeah, right. like, I'm a man writing music, and you respect me. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, but right. it's always a teenage voice, and it's, like, and it's such a, like, a masculine voice. And, like, I don't for think sure. Rick Ocasek has, like, a teenage sounding voice he just has like a weird voice yeah i think i think the writing for that sort of youth voice it's a really easy way to be direct that's why so many bands good bands write in that voice even when they're like fully past that stage in their lives and there's like also like a reflective aspect to it that like is totally part of like artistic processing yeah oh yeah totally weezer you know and the knack as well you know who we just talked about but like so many of the bands that we've talked about on this show do that. I would argue that the zombies do that as well, you know, for where they were at or, you know, or even like Wu-Tang at certain points, you know, sure. as yeah. well. Like, or it's so much a reflection of like 
their time growing up in Staten Island. So this is just like a, a big, uh, you know, pop music tradition. This is not uh, well, it's hugely. That, it's that youthfulness of like rock and roll, you know, like that's the thing is, is that like part yeah. of the genre is to be like, have youthful feelings. Like even if the players themselves aren't teenagers, like the feelings feel like timeless and like make you feel young, like make you feel like you're learning things for the first time and seeing things for the first time. Yeah, and you're being um, and, confronted with certain truths for the first time. Yeah, and like yeah. that that's that newness and that like visceralness I think is what give, like what the song conveys is like it's very visceral. Those emotions are visceral and I think that's why it feels teenagery at least to me. Oh, and yeah. and then I also think that that's a big power pop. I keep bringing this back to power pop because I love to talk about it, but yeah, no, no, no. And thank you because you're definitely the authority between the three of us. And it's something (laughs) we've wanted to have a big, a bit of a bigger discussion about power pop for a while on the show. So, so this is, this is really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big power pop thing. And and I think part of it like is like, it's tied up in teenageriness because that's where it's like socially acceptable. But I think it's also like, weird nerds who don't know what to do with themselves which probably describes all of us um, <laughs> dare you <laughs> like, <laughs> i'm speaking broadly but um like just th- this feeling of like awkwardness and like wanting to express yourself and not knowing quite how to do it yep but you're doing it anyway and like the just that rawness is so appealing because i think everyone has those kinds of feelings at least sometimes where they just don't know what to do with their emotions or they don't know how to express them properly. Mm-hmm. And that's really something that like, to speak broadly of the genre, good rock and roll does well. And that like good power pop does really well. And and like power pop is such like a genre of nerds. Like there are no cool guys in power pop. Like that's right. Van Orr is probably the coolest guy. He doesn't even think he's a cool guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair actually. Yeah, he doesn't. And I don't think any of these guys thought they were cool. No, absolutely not. Yeah. That, it, it's not a maybe, cool maybe David genre. Robinson. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's and that's not a that's not a that's not anything mean against him. He just uh, had such a really great fashion sense. Oh yeah, and, and was well, so influential was part- on the look of the band and the feel of the band. Yeah, yeah, they were all part of that scene. You know that like they. I think I remember hearing something about when they were on Midnight Special. They like wanted it to be as weird as possible. Like they were like, oh, we want like all these like we want suicide on Midnight Special with us and everything. Like, <laughs> They, yeah. they wanted like it to be a weird episode. Like they weren't into like what they felt was like teeny boppery that was oh. popular at the time. I, I think it's like there's just so much nerdiness in that band that people can relate to, and so much nerdiness in the genre at large. Like Big Star, those guys were nerds. Like Alex Chilton of Big Star didn't want to be a teeny bopper idol, which is how he started out when he was yeah. in Box Tops. Yep. Like he wasn't interested in that at all. If you ever watched the performance of him doing the letter on Upbeat, which was filmed <laughs> yeah. in Cleveland, yes. um, he is just like, he's like, this is so dumb. Yeah, he hates <laughs> it. It's amazing. <laughs> and that's kind of how the cars were. You just kind of don't see it as explicitly. Like they thought like they were into cool guy stuff. Like they were into nerdy, <laughs> obscure, cool guy stuff, but like right. not like mainstream cool guy stuff. It, it's, right. it's so interesting. And I mean, not, not to get too like far off track, but I think for me, like, the reason I'm so interested in, like, power pop and that whole, like, ethos and genre is because, like, that's the kind of music that I relate to. Like, I consider myself a, an awkward nerd who doesn't, like, know what to do with myself a lot yeah. of the time, but, like, amen. <laughs> I, I love, I love, like, weird, obscure 60s music like a lot of these people did. Like, I love weird, obscure New York punk. Like, I'm into all of that stuff, and I think, like, those feelings that those people had are, like, relatable, like, emotions, and that comes out in power pop a lot, and you guys were talking in your last uh, episode about like the knack, how it, it's manifested as like weird, awkward 14 year old boyness. 
Yes. And I think that's kind of when it's at its worst. Yes. Like when, it's, <laughs> when it's like horny, like teenage boys. Yes. Yeah. But there's a lot of like weird horny power pop out there. Like Cheap Trick is a very weird horny power pop. Yes. Like, yeah. I think that the cars just were more cerebral about it. And the zombies, you know, were more cerebral about like those kinds of bands. Like they have the same feelings, but the way it's manifested is more in like poetic weirdness. Like to even pull in like a, a reason I love the Everly Brothers is that they're like, they're like a teen idol band that was like weird and poetic. And like, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that like, that's just one way to present it. Like you can be like the romantics or the knack and be like all about the sex. Sure. And then like, you can be like the cars or like the shoes. Um, there's sure. this really great band called the shoes that I love. That's well, they're, they're kind of a little bit horny, but like, they're more like indecisive <laughs> about it. I but, love yeah. like grading them on a horny scale. I yeah, exactly. Actually, that's the new metric. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's something that I guess I like think about a lot. Apparently. Yeah. It's very no, but, no, but it makes a lot of sense. I think, I think it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. There are just different ways to do it. Like you can be you can, like I was saying, you can be Elvis, you can be the Everly Brothers, like you can like be really like poetic or you can be really sexual and like neither of those are wrong paths, but like you can be like maybe not good in retrospect like the Knack did. Like you can say things that like are maybe not considerate to the people who are the object of your affection. <laughs> I think that's when it becomes a problem. For sure. Yeah, yeah you, can, <laughs> you can badger. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't keep referring to it that way because it's, it's like not nice. It's not really true. But you can badger a woman by writing a whole bunch of songs about her to date you for four years yeah you know? yeah <laughs> anyway well, there, there are other bands that did that like the romantics I feel like are very much in the knack vein they just kind of their big hit wasn't like as horny it was just like <laughs> it was what I like about you like it was in that vein but it wasn't like as explicit I, th I think that like I said there's some of that in Cheap Trick there there are just like bands who have like that punch who are like that there's I don't want to just start listing bands but I guess I'm trying to make comparisons like that this is this was a whole like subgenre that was happening at the time that the cars started out mm -hmm. that I think that they were part of even when they didn't realize it um, mm -hmm. where, you know, bands were looking to like these odd influences. And I think in the case of the cars, the reason they come off as more new wave is because a lot of their influences were like seventies, New York people. Mm -hmm. Whereas like certain other bands, their influence, like bands in that scene, their influences were like sixties pop, like the Ramones. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, I think you could go either way. Like, there are just different kind of strains um, that have like vibes, but that are kind of just differentiated by the things that influenced them and the tools they used and like how they crafted their sound. Yeah. And speaking of all of that sort of put into a package, uh, because I think the last song we're going to cover really does that. Let's listen to a little bit of Just What I Needed, which is, I would say, out of all the songs we've covered, the most well-known of the three, but it's worth a listen before we talk about it. So here we go, Just What I Needed.
<laughs> Kyle's doing air synthesizer, uh, just for those who can't see. <laughs> you know, I usually rock out on the air drums because uh, it's easy, but it's too. Uh, if you can get a good air synth going, I mean, you're really in. in you're in the pocket. I agree 100%. So before we talk, I, I, I want to do a bit of a deep dive into this one. Can you guys guess why this is the one that I chose? I think I know. I don't. I want to give Gretchen a chance, but I, I'm. I, I'll put ten bucks. I think I know. <laughs> yeah. I don't even. I don't even know where to start with that. Like, <laughs> I mean, for me, for me, it's just like such a perfect song. <laughs> like, I have a really specific reason why I feel like. I this think is I an know it. Can one. I roll the dice? Of course. Go for it. All right. The opening riff <laughs> is particularly influenced by oh, Yummy, okay. Yummy, Yummy. I, I, <laughs> the opening riff. Literally... Our resident bubblegum. Yes. Uh, expert. Yes. Uh, and thank you. You're a good friend. And that well, shows I, that you care about me. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I should have picked up on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, we did so, all see uh, Louis' bubblegum musical, so. Yes, 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 you guys did, which I very much appreciate. So this is, it's not even influenced by, it literally is the opening riff of Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy, recycled for this song, which is great. And I don't think there's, literally anything wrong with that at all oh, uh, oh. I don't feel I feel that it's it's an interesting little nod there and I think that all that it does is it puts the cars in like this continuum of popular music that is part of like the story of this podcast like the 20th century continuum that takes us all the way through right up to the present We've, we've addressed, we did an entire episode of this show about Joey Levine, who's the songwriter who wrote Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy. And then this takes us through and, and we look at the bands that Okasik produced, like Weezer, who we've also covered, and then also like all the way up to, I'd say, with Latigra. And uh, I feel like the entire thing is like a story about kind of the redemption of the tastes of the young and becoming more and more and more legitimate as the story of rock and roll continues to a band, you know, like if we want to end this story, particularly unlike La Tigra, who have a lot of the same influences, who are like quite well respected as being like an important like force in um, like feminist, you know, pop music, you know, but, but, but the roots are in something like Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy, which was written for young girls to enjoy and was written to be like very simplistic and very accessible. And so many of these bands from this era listened to this music as kids that was like critically despised. And they were like, no, 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 you know, th there was reasons why this is so listenable. And then they used it, you know, for their own purposes and definitely like Okasik gets it, you know, and, and in the same song, there's specifically there's the line wasting all my time time which is a reference to the velvet underground song sister ray and i would say that um ben Orr on this song he sings a song definitely there's like kind of a there's a there's a lou reedish influence as well like in the way that he's singing it so like they're basically borrowing from two songs that came out like around the same time and one that was considered really bass culture and one that was considered like the pinnacle of rock and roll and just putting them in a blender and being like, no, this is all the same. You know, this is all, this is really all, all the same. And it's all about the way it makes you feel. So yeah, I think that that's, 
that's the reason why I want to talk about it. Also, too, just watching them play this live, something that I think is so funny and hammers my point home is when that guitar riff is being played, the opening Ohio Express yummy, yummy guitar riff, the motions that are being done are literally exactly the same sort of herky-jerky motions that the like fake Ohio Express used when they played the song live and like basically like played you know their fake like lip sync version of the song it's the same motions I feel it's like yeah that's like how the guitar riff makes you feel is the way that you want it to be played yeah so anyway that's just what I needed and why I want to talk about it (laughs) um yeah this is uh I mean it okay not to Okay, I just have to come clean right now. Okay, please. Um, I love this song. This listening is, this to is the it again. This podcast on honesty. <laughs> yeah, listening to it again for in in the lead up to this podcast has been really fun. But I have to admit, I have I for a long time I could not listen to this song mm-hmm. because it was used in an Office Depot commercial from mm-hmm. like 2006, and it made me want to fucking tear my hair out and i mean they only used the chorus and they used it like i mean if, if it's it's just like you know clockwork orange type like mind control associating a good thing with like horrific imagery like i can't if you just have like glamour shots of three ring binders and then play this over that it just like ruined it for me for a long time <laughs> I still think of that sometimes. Every so often I hear it like just in passing and I think of those commercials and it's like, why did they have to do like I know I know you guys need money, but like I'm I'm really not happy. Yeah. I I feel that way about taking care of business. That was I think that was in like staples. Yeah. (laughs) There was another commercial that would always be on the radio when I drive to um, school and it would do the who's I call that a bargain. (laughs) (laughs) It was for like a local GM dealership and it like made it that was that's that song also like um, nightmares. Not to go too far down that hole. But I feel like we could talk about this for a few minutes. (laughs) I've got one too that I think you guys are going to find funny. Go for it. There was this one it was not the Dusty Springfield version, but it was wishing, hope, it was wishing and hoping. Yeah, that song, and it was like Lunchables or something. It yeah, was like I just remember there's this kid on a bus, and they like open their like lunch, and it's like whatever the thing was that they're trying to sell. Like it was so weird, and like I still think of that when I hear. Then that's so stupid. Like I hate that commercial. Bye. Yep. My for my own childhood on the radio, my favorite is Red Hot Free Gifts, Red Hot Savings Make You Hot Hot Hot. Luckily, luckily, Buster Point Dexter was not. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, to go from the New York Dolls to that, I mean, I think he already was like, please use this song in a totally. Commercial. Please, yes. God, he use this like, song in a commercial. Yes. But, but all the Buster Point Dexter <laughs> stuff is super fun. So you know what? No I, as soon as I Point said it, stuff. I was like, "Louis is gonna know about the like good Buster Point Dexter deep cuts," and I oh, can't yeah. wait for you to show me. Oh yeah, 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 totally. No, no, there's, there's, there's some really, really funny, fun Buster Point Dexter stuff. Unfortunately, society is just set up that these guys need to make money, so they need to license their stuff, you know. Yeah, and I wish, I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. Uh, and I'm glad that they wrote stuff that has such a longevity that they could continue to collect royalties from, like the use in commercials because it's a hard life for a legacy musician out there it's really rough it's it's difficult it's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why it's good that uh okasik in his career was able to segue into being a pretty well-respected producer and is able to keep making money yep. you know after the cars broke up david robinson 
for a while was a manager at a restaurant. You know, mm-hmm. like things are things are hard for musicians. Now he is he owns his own art gallery in Rockport, Mass, and makes his own jewelry, which I think is awesome. So good for nice. him, you know, to All continue right. to support himself. And um, another thing too, just sort of about the the later history of this band that is also kind of interesting when it comes to all being working musicians is the band wanted to re to reform. This was after Orr's unfortunate death. The, the breakup of the band kind of um, apparently drove a wedge between Okasik and Orr's friendship, which is really sad. And in interviews, Okasik said that like, uh, or had certain ideas for the band that Okasik didn't like, like using some of his girlfriend's songs, for example. But it made, or he felt like Or was kind of holding a, a chip on his shoulder about it. And apparently Okasik just wasn't into touring anymore as well. He didn't like it. It took its toll on him. He wasn't into it anymore. So the Cars reformed with Todd Rundgren as their lead singer and it was totally, you know, blessed by Okasik. He was like, yeah, go out and do this. Like, I don't begrudge you at all. And they reformed as the new Cars. And then they, and then they also, the Cars recorded a studio album together in 2011, which is not, uh-huh. not bad as well. So there was sort of some later period activity for these guys after not hearing from them for a long time. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, we lost Okasik last year. I think it was like, it was like one of those things where they don't tell you about the cancer until like he's already uh-huh. passed. So I think it was yeah. like a, a very like low profile situation until like he died and they found out he had cancer. Like everybody found out he had cancer after that. Uh-huh. I think yeah. it was that kind of situation. Or it was either that or it was just like, it was complications from surgery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which. I, I feel like I might be conflating like multiple celebrity deaths. Yeah, and that's <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. I remember we were talking about his age. I do remember when that came out. There was this whole weird thing about like how old actually was he? Yeah, because like his like birth certificate. I guess that you know like when you die, like they publicize your actual age when you die. Sure. And it was like older than it was ever than anybody ever realized. Really? The wow. Public real like it was a few years older. Oh my god! Um, and I think that was just such a thing back then. Was like you had to like fudge your, and it was easier to yeah. fudge your age, right? Before his public record, and like you could just like lie about how old, like the monkeys did, like did that, right? <laughs> like they lied about how old he was, so that Mike could be the oldest one. <laughs> so it's it's like a, I think it's just a thing that people used to do in the industry where they would pretend that they were younger than they were. Yeah, um, and it's it's a form of ageism because they were really worried that young people wouldn't want to hear someone in their 30s singing about like girls and cars and stuff. When really at the end of the day, I think that actually audiences are a little more open-minded than that and don't totally care, you know, so. Yeah, they'll go on how you look. They won't even like question how old you are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think like Rico Kasich needed to worry about looking like like the young sex symbol. I don't think he was ever worried about right, that. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he didn't was... seem to go for that. He seemed more interested <laughs> in like being a snappy dresser. Yeah, right. a, a well-dressed Count Chocula type. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> this, this has been another episode of Kick the Jukebox. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gretchen, for joining us. This was such a fruitful conversation about this this wonderful band. Uh, Gretchen, is there any social media stuff you want people to follow you on? Um, I'm not, I'm not the biggest social media person, but I do have an Instagram, uh, which is like private, but if you follow me, I'll probably accept it. Um, yeah. It's Gretch in the groove. So it's G-R-E-T-C-H-I-N the groove. Yeah. 
you can find me. I, I post stuff about my radio show there at least. So if you want to like be reminded that it's happening, I post whenever it's happening. And again, that's happening tomorrow um, on WRUW. Yes. 6 p.m. Is it every Sunday? Yeah, every Sunday um, for the foreseeable future. I'm recording from home. <laughs> so hopefully as long as we're allowed to keep doing that, it's going to happen. Yeah, that's um, like totally the the where Kyle and I are at with this project yeah. as well. It's and, like, well, we can do this right now. Let's let's fucking do it. Yeah. And it, yeah. if you if you like this kind of music, like if you like the cars, if you like, I mean, basically what I play is like 50s through 80s. Um, mm-hmm. And some days I'll focus on a certain decade or genre, but that's the span. And um, if if you want to hear like weird, weird, obscure cars, deep cuts, sometimes I play those. I've played uh, the cars version of Little Black Gag, which is freaking great. Awesome. Just like a 60s garage song for those who don't know. Yeah, so definitely go on to WRUWFM or WRUW.org to find the show, Dead Airplay Record Club, just because uh, this is going to air on Monday, this podcast. So it airs live every Sunday just for our listeners that are listening to this archived. Yeah, so, you know, kick the jukebox. You can rate and review us. Please uh, just remember what I talked about, those organizations that are doing really good work on the ground right now when it comes to, like, the modern civil rights struggle. It could really use your help. So uh, please uh, just, uh, they're in the show notes. Uh, I mentioned them at the beginning of the podcast as well. And, uh, you know, uh, as per usual, you know, this is just such a pleasure. Kyle, this is the best. So glad we get to do this together. (laughs) Woohoo! (laughs) <laughs> Kyle's throwing his fingers up in a peace sign like yeah. our listeners are going to be able to tell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's why there was a pause before he realized he needed to vocalize what he was doing. <laughs> I still, after all these years, it, it, the purely audio medium has uh, is lost on me. Yes. <laughs> but you're, you know, every day, every day is an improvement. Uh, <laughs> this is Kick the Jukebox. Uh, I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. We will see you around like a record. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah!